Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, we're talking about what we're reading books, books, books with special guests Nikki Darling and Esme Wang. Hello, Ann Friedman. Hello, hello, hello. I'm very excited about today's episode. Books, books, books. Books, books, books. You know, in this family, we love to read books. Yeah, and I have to say, I'll put in one more plug for our listener survey, which is still live. Um, you can take it at callyourgirlfriend.com slash survey. Y'all love books. I mean, 100% resounding agreement. You might disagree about what terms constitute racial identity, but you agree on books. Um, <laughs> Thank God. Like, I love women who read. And women who read, like, diverse, uh, you know, like, a diverse array of uh, publishing offerings. So this was cool. Completely. And so we have a few interviews in this episode with authors of new or new-ish books that we're really loving. And then at the end, we'll also have a few other recommendations of what we've both read lately. You all can join in, use the hashtag CYGbooks on Insta or Twitter and tell us what you're reading and what you recommend and why. First up, we have a book that you gave me, actually. Hey, uh, hey. That you gave me before the pub date. I love it when you're the person that brings the advanced copy in my life. So mm. not only the pleasure of recommending a great book, but like being the person to be like, got it for you early. A great pleasure. I know. <laughs> um, so this book is The Collected Schizophrenias by Esme Wang. And it is truly, truly, truly brilliant. It's a book about mental illness and about Esme's journey, but truly like it is funny. It's also highly intelligent it makes you question a lot of assumptions that you have about mental illness you know especially in this time and as Esme points out where people are definitely like freer and freer to talk about certain forms of mental illness mm -hmm. a lot of us over here bond about our depression and our anxiety like that's cute this is not the kind of stuff that people are super open to talking about mm -hmm. and you leave both like loving her as a human being and somebody who is just you're like yes you dress well and you are very <laughs> funny and you are also just like doing your best in this like terrible world that we live in total package i feel this on a personal level but on a big ideas and big picture level it really like kind of is opening your brain also and i appreciate that mm. so here's esme oh also like esme will say this at the end but like her website is truly great so <laughs> other authors please like take note take note like this website is popping my name is esme weijun wang and the book i've written is the collected schizophrenias congratulations esme this is big <laughs> thank you so much i feel like i've been following you for a while and so uh it's been like kind of a treat to be on the journey of seeing this book being published and when Anne gave it to me at her house the other day, I uh, I was really excited. I was like, oh, thank you for having the thing that I knew I wanted to read in advance. <laughs> and you write so beautifully, but also like painfully about the stigma of mental illness. How did you know that you were ready to write about this? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes back a ways to when I was 
not ready to to even be open about having a diagnosis of severe mental illness. I've carried a number of diagnoses in the kind of mental health realm for a while, beginning from when I was in my mid-teens. And I'd always think to myself, oh, eventually I want to write about mental health issues. But um, it wasn't until I started working at a startup company in here in Silicon Valley that I thought to myself, well, I have a job and I can't not get a job because of being open about mental health issues. It was about as stable as I felt like I could be. So I decided to start being open on the internet about having these mental health diagnoses and then writing these essays. The first one that was published was Perdition Days, which is in the book. It was published in The Toast, Rest in Peace Toast. R.I.P. <laughs> Toast. Um, and that was kind of a very memoristic piece that I wrote when I was suffering from Qatar's delusion, the rare delusion that one is dead. I kind of considered it my beat to write about um, psychotic disorders and the schizophrenias in particular. That's where I ended up with 100 pages of essays about the schizophrenias wow. and, um, yeah, and deciding to submit to the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize. And that's kind of what kicked it all off. It is incredibly generous to share your diagnosis because I think that while it's true that, you know, there is a lot of talk about depression and about anxiety um, it people talk about it in ways I find that are not like hyper specific mm -hmm. and and something that is like very different. Obviously, like your diagnosis is different, but you do talk about it in a very specific kind of way and very in a very clinical way. Mm -hmm. And you really explain that experience of just like watching your mind pull away from you. Mm -hmm. That I think is still something that, uh, you know, like schizophrenia just still terrifies people. Once we start getting like schizophrenia memes on the Internet, maybe I'll believe that, you know, society is ready <laughs> in general. But, you know, there's not a ton of memes about schizophrenia yet. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's something I talk about in the book. Like when I was searching on Facebook and I found all these memes about, oh, the po the positive things about various forms of mental health diagnoses. Here are all the good things about depression. Well, depression can cause you to become more sensitive and more attuned to your fellow human beings. Anxiety can cause you to pay more attention to detail. And as I was going through these memes, I realized there's no way there's going to be something about schizophrenia in here. Nobody sees schizophrenia as something that carries positive traits. And lo and behold, there wasn't anything positive about schizophrenia in those memes. So yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, I look forward to that day, um, but that day is not here yet. Yeah. Do you think also that it has to do with the fact that um, psychosis like presents kind of differently for a lot of people? And so it's just harder to challenge uh, like broader misconceptions about it? Psychosis tends to present in a way that is very confusing to people. So there's the problem of people not really understanding what psychosis means. So people will tend to kind of toss off words like psychotic or psycho. If you ask people, what is psychosis? It'll kind of bring up things like, oh, my psychotic ex-girlfriend instead of, well, psychosis is made up of hallucinations, which are false sensory perceptions or uh, false beliefs, which make up delusions. 
things like that. So there's the kind of confusion about what psychosis even means. And then there's also the confusion and fear of inexplicable behavior, which I think is something mm. that really frightens people. The man screaming on the bus or, you know, the person walking down the street who is muttering to themselves. That person is not, does not hew to our understanding of what people are supposed to act like. So that is something that kind of innately causes fear in the average person. Yeah, you know, and then there's also just this feeling of we always group like people with mental illness in two groups. There are the low functioning people and then there are the high functioning people. And even that language itself is so uh, it kind of makes no sense. And it really is just like meant to induce like more stigma and shame, I think. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as somebody who is perceived as a high functioning person with mental illness. Yeah, there is an essay in the book called High Functioning. Wanting to align myself with a high-functioning group is very akin to the way in which people from marginalized groups tend to want to align themselves with the subsection of their marginalized group that is looked upon a little bit more favorably by the outside world. I'm thinking of the model minority among people of color or people who are seen as more respectable among their their minority group. The idea of being high functioning is something that people aspire to because they don't want to be seen as kind of dangerous or messy as mm -hmm. their their counterparts. In that essay, I'm at this mental health clinic in North Beach slash Chinatown in San Francisco. And I'm arguing with myself because I'm with these people who have been attending this schizophrenia support group for a very, very long time. And I keep trying to remind myself, you're not like these people, you're not like these people. But then I remind, try to remind myself, you are like these people. And the more you try to push yourself away from that, the more you alienate yourself and the more you alienate these people who are just as human as you are. Yeah, you know, you've also written so much about fashion and using like kind of costuming and fashion to pass as normal or I'm just like wondering if you can expand a little bit more on on that. Yeah, I, I tend to, um, I wrote this piece for uh, Catapult called Fashioning Normal, and I just find the phrase Fashioning Normal to be so helpful in discussing this. I feel like I've been able to assemble a wardrobe of clothing that allows me to come across as glamorous or as fashionable, and that's definitely not the way people tend to think of individuals with severe mental illness, particularly psychotic disorders. A piece I wrote for Elle recently, I think for their February issue this year, is about uh, red lipstick and my relationship to red lipstick and how I like to uh, put on red lipstick before I leave the house. And in part, that's a nod to the stereotype of people with schizophrenia or the schizophrenias or psychotic disorders having smeared lipstick in public, you know, uh, whatever happened to baby Jane, that kind of like really terrifying smeared lipstick. 
or Requiem for a Dream, the Ellen Burstyn character is just having this horrific face covered in smeared makeup. It's also a nod to my great aunt who was eventually institutionalized and died in a mental institution. But my mom, um, some of the only memories my mom has of that great aunt is of her coming downstairs to eat and having lipstick smeared all over her face. It's a it's a stereotype, but also one that a lot of people have experienced and, and have witnessed as a sign of insanity. I love uh, that you spoke about your family because I when I was reading um, when I was reading the book, a lot of what I thought about is that you know as a West African person, the the immigrant stigma that is also uh, like that permeates like all of the feelings about mental health is something that is so front of mind for me where mm-hmm. I, you know, it's this, this desire to like, um, to, to present as high functioning for me, a lot of times, like I realize that that is a lot of it is just tied into my national kind of identity. Right. And, and obviously like, you know, like gender also influences like so much of that and class and so many other things. But I think that for me, the the immigrant line like runs strongest. I was really curious about how like your cultural background like makes you think about a lot of these issues. Yeah, I mean, my cultural background really impacted even the way I was, I was able to get treatment or not able to get treatment. When I first started to exhibit really serious symptoms of at the time clinical depression in my teenhood, my parents didn't really know what to do with me, I would come to them in the middle of the night and show them these cuts all up and down my arms. And they they just kind of said, well, do you want to see a therapist? And I, I was so scared. And I just said, no. And they, they were like, okay. And then they didn't, they kind of didn't touch that topic again. But mostly they were just scared. And they also had this stigma, this cultural stigma of not wanting to kind of mar my reputation. They didn't want to mar their reputation. They thought that I, um, as immigrants, they had given me everything that I could possibly want. And they said this to me um, when I first brought up the idea of going to therapy. They said, you know, we, we came to this country, we gave you food, you have a roof over your head. What more could you possibly want? Um, and when I finally um, went to go see a psychiatrist and upon the uh, the orders of my school counselor who I was seeing kind of in secret um, but she determined that I was very severely depressed and needed to see somebody and they kind of called my mom in um, we went to go see a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist asked is there any history of mental illness in your family? And my mom just said, no. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I didn't find out until much later that the answer was definitely not no. Our our family tree is marred by suicide and institutionalization and depression and panic and alcoholism and addiction and all kinds of things. But when I eventually asked my mom, well, why didn't you say anything to that doctor? She said, like, like those are things that we don't talk about. Mm. So, um, so that even prevented me from getting the medical care that I, that I could have used at that time. 
So yeah, that, that, that did have a large effect in many ways. I mean, that, you know, that sentence that you just said, that, like, those are just things that we don't talk about, that it's so, um, it's so pervasive in almost every culture. It's just that, you know, every culture has their own very specific way that they handle that shame. And mm. that's why I keep going back to your book being so generous, because I think that it gives a language to so many of us to to talk about these things, like, very specifically. And also, for me, at least, like, made me feel that, Mental health is something that I could talk to my African family about, even though it sounds like very scary, because I think that you're right about looking at the family tree and saying like, oh, yeah, like this is what's been going on here forever, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you know, and in a way like that makes you feel like less alone, I guess, knowing Mm -hmm. that it like or for me, at least like I did that where I was like, oh, this is part like this is part of my family tree and it's part of my legacy and and didn't have to deal so much with uh, which like I think a question that like you wrestle with a lot about whether, you know, like your mental illness is is removed from this like kind of impeccable self that you can have, or is it just like mm-hmm. a disorder that follows you? And for me at least, like I found a lot of solace in like, okay, like uh, the women in my family be depressed, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we just, yeah. like, that's like that's part of my ancestry and really trying to, to, like, grapple with that. And so, like, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think the, for me, sometimes, I, I don't know, like, I've talked to a couple of people about this, the idea, like, whether the idea of, yes, there's an impeccable self, and then the illness is kind of like laid over you, like smallpox blankets, or whether the the illness or disorders are kind of integrated into you, and you kind of grow with them, and they're, you know, in you, um, which, which is the most useful way of looking at it. And for me, I think the latter has been more useful to me in part because I think that the more I search for this impeccable self, pardon me for using this word, but like the more insane it makes me. Like I mm-hmm. I, I, can't, um, first of all, I can't remember this impeccable self. The last time this person existed was probably when I was like four. I had mental illness issues like from a very young age I think to try and fight myself in a quest for searching for that impeccable self is exhausting and so I I don't think I can find that person and I don't know if it's worth it to try and find that person even though it might be helpful for some people to think of the illness or the disorder as something that they can fight and it's something outside of themselves and you need to defeat it much in the way people talk about cancer as something you need to fight and beat. And then when somebody passes away as a result of cancer, then it's like so-and-so lost their battle with cancer. I mean, I don't know. I find that, that kind of language to be quite sad in a lot of ways. For me, anyway, that's much less helpful than thinking of it as this is a part of me and the more I move move around in my life, the more oscillations I experience, the more fluctuations I experience. I experience 
uh, healing as a spiral where I go around and around in a spiral. It's not a linear thing. Yeah. Um, this is something I learned from my therapist. Um, but it, it's a, you go around and around. So you, you keep coming back to the same spot essentially, but you're a little bit further out on the spiral. And so uh, that's how I see that concept. I think that that's so much more helpful because otherwise, you know, we're still centering this idea that there are, you know, it's like normal people versus crazy people. Right. And that if you are not, uh, you know, if like every neurotransmitter is not firing 100% that day, then, um, you know, there's something that is not normal about you, which is, it's such an unhelpful way to think, but it's also a very unrealistic way to even start to think about that. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. We talk a lot on the show about, um, you know, like friendship, obviously. And mental health is something that uh, is both, uh, you know, it's like an opportunity for friendship. And it is also a threat in a lot of friendships because there are uh, there are just people who don't get it. And I was so touched by everything that you you talked about in that essay about being high functioning because people who are not high functioning are not seen as desirable in friendship either and, mm -hmm. you know, or in any kind of like relationship spectrum. And mm -hmm. so I would love to hear your thoughts on what the challenges are there for, um, for people who, who have mental illness when they're friends with people who don't understand it, but also like how people who like people from all over the spectrum can be better friends to people who have mental illness. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the most amazing things that have happened for me over the years as I've gone through more acute phases of illness has been discovering who is willing to be a friend and who is willing to be helpful. When I was very, very ill in late 2013 um, and I was experiencing some of the worst psychosis I had ever experienced, my husband, C, in the book, he put together a care calendar for people to come over and just sit with me for like hours every day, just so I wouldn't be alone and so that I could feel more safe. And there was this one friend, um, and, and I'll name him, shout out to Colin. Um, and I did not know him at the time. Um, he was a new partner of a friend of mine, but he volunteered for like almost all the days and I barely knew who he was but he showed up he just kept showing up and he was so good at just coming over and he brought his work and he would just sit there and he would talk to me sometimes if he felt like I needed you know somebody to talk to but otherwise he would just be quiet and and not force anything and to me, that was one of the most wonderful things to realize that that people cared, like even people I didn't realize cared, um, mm. cared. And then, of course, there are the people like my best friend, Miriam, who whom I've known for over a decade now. She's been absolutely wonderful and just has stuck by me for years um, through thick and thin and those friendships are also so dear to me. It's also been really wild and interesting to see the friendships that fall away. And 
it's been really important for me to, as I get older, to try and locate the toxicity in friendships before they get out of control. That's something that I think at this point, now that I'm like in my mid to late 30s, that I need to really start figuring out before it's too late. But I'm trying to get better at it. What do you think are good ways to figure that out? (laughs) I think just warning signs. Um, So much of it is, for me, ignoring my intuition. Just that gut feeling that like, oh, this is not a good situation. Um, Or like, you know, going to my therapist over and over again and bringing up the same topics over and over again, hearing my therapist very patiently, like, you know, not telling me like you need to get out of this situation, but, but knowing that it's not a good situation because I keep bringing it up over and over again. Um, and then, you know, finally after like over a year of bringing up the same thing every week, um, finally getting the strength to like break it off. Um, I feel like I want to get to a point where as an adult, I can kind of make that happen sooner. I know. And just like be surrounded by Collins. I need many more Collins. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Everyone needs, everyone needs more of those. That's the best. But hey, listen, you're going on this like kind of big book tour. Um, Yeah. You know, you've written like a, you know, like a book that people have been waiting for all year (laughs) or like four years and then it's finally here. Um, And I'm just like wondering how, like what your strategies are for taking care of yourself while you're on the road because so many people want so much from you right now. Yeah. um, Something that's really helped is that with the help of my agent and the person who is helping to manage my tour, um, Marissa at Grey Wolf, we've come up with this thing that we jokingly call my rock star writer. And it just describes like all the things I want to need having to do with like food and um, uh, Please describe the writer in detail. Like, what, are, <laughs> what is the food? What is the situation? Like, we, um, love, we love a writer on TV. <laughs> It's like got stuff like, oh, I need gluten-free food. Um, It's got stuff like I can't fly in um, and then do an event on the same day. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got stuff like I need wheelchair assist at airports. It helps to have my hotel room near the elevator stuff like that. So I've never made so many asks of anybody before. These are all things that I've just like kind of struggled with in various other um, tours or festivals or whatever, where I'm like, oh, like I, I've walked four blocks and like was half dead by the time I got to the festival. So, you know, I, I realized that I need like a golf cart by the, you know, to help me get from place to place. These are all things that like are accommodations that are important for me. And uh, we're really trying to make sure, and I'm, I feel really lucky that my team is working really hard to make sure that all of my accommodations happen for my um, 
so that this tour can go as smoothly as possible. And I've, I've also been really paying attention to, say, like Roxane Gay and the way that she um, shares on social media how her accommodations work and how often um, she is thwarted or frustrated by um, people not um, taking her accommodations into consideration, which I just find absolutely, like, frustrating on her behalf because you know it's Roxanne Gay come on I mean get it, get it's it also, together it's also Esme Wang so you know it <laughs> is I don't know even the word uh, accommodations like accommodation sends me into like orbit in a way that I do not like um it's not accommodating you to ask uh, people to do the bare minimum to make the world uh, a place that you can live in. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, yeah. um, I'm so happy to hear that you have a good team behind you and that, um, you know, you are listening to your bod and to yourself. And yeah. we are super excited for you. Thank you so much for coming on Call Your Girlfriend. Thank you so much. This has been such a joy and a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Can you tell us where people can find your work? Yes, um, people can find my work at EsmeWang.com. There's a whole wide world of excellent stuff there. It's not one of those bare bones author websites. It's like a whole menagerie (laughs) of stuff. It's amazing. We love a good author website. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That's genius. (laughs) One thing I love so much about this collection is it was an education for me, but also just like on a level of words and literature, just like so beautiful and so wonderfully crafted, you know, and I feel like that's just the win, win, win. I know. Queen of words, queen of (laughs) (laughs) self-care. I don't know. Also, her name is amazing. So Mm. I just like total package. Love it. (laughs) Triple threat. Multiple threat. Love it. (laughs) You know what, Anne? Let's take a break because Gina's in the room and she says we need an ad break. Okay, so speaking of multi-level threats and multi-talented women, I spoke to one of my favorite writers and artists, Nikki Darling. Oh, another incredible name. Her given name, Nicole Felicia Darling. Love you so much. She and I met because we read at the same reading, at the same small kind of group community reading many years ago. And by total random coincidence, both of our stories featured a hamster. <laughs> both the things we were reading. Oh, your hamster story. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> she, oh my God. Anyway, so we've been friends ever since. And I have been a fan of her words ever since that first time I heard her read. And she's the author of a new novel called Fade Into You, which is a work of uh, what's sometimes called autofiction or a new narrative. It is 100% a novel, but it draws from a lot of the themes and kind of broader context from her own life. The protagonist is also named Nikki Darling. I love it as 
an L.A. book. It's set in the San Gabriel Valley in the 1990s. I love it as a book that really centers and takes super seriously the experience of teen girls. You know, there are some works of fiction, whether they're movies or novels or what have you, where you really just feel dropped into a time and place. Like, they don't go out of their way to, like, give you a lot of, you know, like on the West Wing, how everything's explained to Donna like she's dumb. You know, like, like there's not a lot of, like, explained I backstory. I feel triggered and attacked. My complaints about the West Wing are another story. Are but, awful. But I Let's just, go back. I just love, I just, I, I love, I love um, narrative with that immersive quality where you know, she's at her own speed and it's like, get on board and catch up. I'm just going to plunge you in. And that is very much how this novel feels to me. Here's Nikki on Fade Into You. Nikki, hello. Hi, Anne. (laughs) I love your novel so much. One of the reasons why I love it is because I know it draws on a lot of your experiences without being memoir. Like it is a novel completely a novel yeah and um and so I feel like as your pal I got to know (laughs) you better from reading it but also not in this like literal way where I'm like why didn't she tell me this story I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what parts of yourself you decided to include in this and why yeah so I decided to write it in the style of new narrative because that's the genre that um my dissertation is about new narrative being um writers who make sort of uh, literary choices that could be blurred the lines between like memoir and fiction, like Ann Carson or Eileen Miles, or a great example is Michelle T. Mm-hmm. So I decided to use my name because I was... You mean for the main character? For the main character has my name, Nikki Darling, specifically for the use of this novel because I wanted to create as little distance between the reader and the character as I could because I feel like being in the interiority of a teenage girl is not something that readers are always familiar with unless they're specifically seeking out that type of literature. There is like a YA you know, tradition, of course, but my novel is not a YA novel. Just in all my different works and areas of creative output, my goal is always first and foremost, to elevate the voices of women and in particular young women. And so the high school in the novel is my high school. The characters in the novel... Which is where? The Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. (laughs) So the characters are composites of actual people, but no one character is like one person. Like I took different things from different people that I knew in high school. For instance, the Dan character is based on a group of four boys that I knew. And I just... I used the face of the most beautiful boy and just sort of homogenized the characteristics of the other boys to create this sort of composite. So nothing in the novel would have been out of the ordinary in my actual high school experience. I knew intimately the setting in which I was writing. The way I sort of read it is you had you took a few things from your life and particularly this period of your life, your teen years, that were like deeper truths and then and then kind of wrote out from there and I'm wondering if you could talk about what some of those like deeper truths or things you were like wrestling with as a teen were or like maybe character Nikki Darling what is she wrestling with I just wanted to like explore like the dynamics of like female friendship and and the voice of a girl who's not tragic right like she's not tragic She's had some terrible things happen to her, but she still moves through the world and she's not viewed as a tragic character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one thing that really stands out to me, too, when I when I think about things that I learned from this book, which like there were many. Oh, my God. Really? Um, but, you know, her sort of sense of not just moving between 
two worlds in the sense that she is mixed race. Right. But but also the sense that like moving through a lot of worlds, like her school world and her home world or her mom's world and her dad's world and her friend's world. And like, you know, the sense of you getting to see how she changes in these different environments and like how how that is really at this like kind of vulnerable life stage in some ways, how she's internalizing that message that she has to be different in these different spaces. Yes, Anne. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, she's a shapeshifter. And like that element of the book, I would say is the most like memoir-esque that I pulled from is that I am mixed race. It was really weird to grow up as a mixed race person who passes. I do not look Latinx So there are two questions I got asked a lot. Is that your real name? Mm -hmm. And what are you? What are you? Is that your real name? What are you? Is that your real name? Like, I'm trying to get rid of that sense of self, which is that I have to, I have to sort of explain why I'm in the room, Mm -hmm. right? Or like, explain who I am. Or, um, yeah, like qualify my presence. That's been, I think, like the most difficult thing about being a mixed race person is that you kind of are constantly having, yes, like you said, to move between these different worlds and navigate. But in another way, that's a privilege, right? Like when I walk into a store, I get to decide who I want to be. I mean, I, I always identify myself if that's an issue now, but as a child, no one tells you how to do that. You know, no one tells you how to navigate social interactions And um, yeah, I was privy to a lot of racist conversations growing up because they thought that I was just, you know, another white person in the room. And in a lot of ways I am because my access and the way I'm treated when I move through the world is like a white person. But then in my home, my actual home, I'm with my grandpa. I mean, everyone's a Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. In some ways that feels very universal teen to me. When I think about my teen years, it was like, always feeling a little bit out of place or like kind of trying on different things that I was like, does this fit? Do I want to be this? Absolutely. And it was really interesting for me and like educational to read about that through lenses that I just did not and do not have. Also, it's just like such a great LA time capsule of a period and a moment and a place of the city that like I will just never experience because I I moved here later than that. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit too and like whether you thought consciously about trying to document a period in time in a place in Los Angeles. Absolutely. I mean, that was a major factor in why I wrote the book. Um, LA in the 90s was, some might say, like dangerous or scary. And certainly there are a lot of elements that were you know, uh, difficult to navigate. It was um, right after the riots and um, right after the earthquake. And uh, there was a bit of a recession happening in Los Angeles specifically. There was white flight. Like there's an influx of immigrants, which to some people seem very threatening. But that's a lot of what like gave the San Gabriel Valley, which is a main character in my novel, the personality that I that I moved into when I was growing up. I actually thought that Los Angeles was a lot more exciting and fun and free in the 90s. And I don't think just because I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I've talked to other people who lived here then. And um, it was like a different city. Like, first of all, I never got carded. I started going out, really going out at 15. I used to go out to like school clubs. And by that, I mean like I'm not joking people's garages and they you would like pay like five dollars to get in and like local bands are playing. And um Then I got a fake ID, and and as soon as I made friends with slightly older kids, I started going to clubs like Jabberjaw and, like, Cafe Blue and, like, um, The Garage and, like, 
Bricktops, which where Vaginal Davis used to have um, a, like a, not a burlesque, but um, a night. She was there. And right. it was Feminist just, performance icon, Vaginal right. Davis. Right. It was just a different place. My, who My father, who also grew up here. The only thing you can count on as an Angelino is that the city you grew up in won't be there when you go looking for it. I think that's true of a lot of places, big, places that are right. big and dynamic and draw like, you know, draw people from elsewhere. Like, right. frankly, like because they are big and dynamic. And but I think there's something extremely unique to Los Angeles is that since it known for like cults and like new age stuff, which is real going back to the teens. I mean, this was a place uh, like, you know, Amy Semple McPherson. Like, I know this is like a big word right now, like scammers. So you know what I mean? Like, like it's always like, it's been a scammer paradise for a long time. For, yeah. Charlatans yeah. and yeah. like hucksters, like all the way going back. And then the movie industry, which is like, you know, like fantasy and like make believe in this kind a of different kind of scammers paradise. A different kind of scammers <laughs> paradise. Exactly. But there are actually people who are from here and it is slightly unsettling to grow up having that constantly sort of pushed in your face this sort of reinvention or this sort of like this isn't like a static place nothing beautiful ever lasts here longer than like 50 years they will tear it will be torn down like if there's a building you like take a photo it won't be there when you're like I don't know. Ugh. It's just like my former gynecologist's office in West Hollywood, which was this beautiful pink and black and white building. Right. Like, I loved gone. it. And now it's gone already. Right. And I've only lived here like a decade. That has been like the story of my life growing up here. And when I came back from New York every year um, when I was an undergrad, it was like, oh, what did they tear down now? And so there's this sort of like ephemeral sense that nothing is static here and that you sort of have to continually like rediscover and reinvent who you are. I wanted the novel to also acknowledge that there are people who who have lived here their whole lives and are from here and have family that are from here where that becomes not a burden, but it's difficult sometimes. It's a static relationship to a place that resists stasis. <laughs> stasis. That resists stasis. Thank you. One of the things that I have always admired about you as an artist is that you are really great at just saying yeah this is the thing I do and doing it oh, you know like you. there's a lot of people who are very <laughs> tortured about like oh I want to be a writer or I want to be a performer or I want to be a visual artist but they're not actually doing the thing they just kind of feel a feeling and like you have always been someone who you're just like always doing the thing or multiple things <laughs> it always feels to me at least that the external validation of a publisher or a gallery or all of these things that kind of like signify like you are in fact an artist or you are in fact a writer have been secondary to you in this moment especially when there is a perception that you can put your work on the internet or in the world and immediately people will tell you if it's good or not and if they don't say anything then it must not be good and people you know like there's this sense of immediate feedback and like um, that everything has to be working out right away. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you knew that, like, for example, this was a great idea for a novel, because it obviously is. Like, and how did you kind of, like, double down on that and stick with it? Oh, wow. Thank you. That's 
so nice. Um, well, I didn't know this was a great idea for a novel. I was hoping. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I should say is that I'm okay. By no means do I think I'm old. Like I don't think I'm old, but I'm 38. So it's like I've been at this for a minute. But not everything I do gets recognized. A hundred percent is I yeah. guess what I'm trying to say. So there's a lot yeah. of stuff I do that doesn't hit. Right. Exactly. Like I throw a lot of things, and not everything like sticks. But the things that do are usually the best ones, and that's good because then people end up seeing the best of what I can do. But there are lots of things that I wanted in the world that didn't make it into the world. And now I'm grateful for Mm. because I look back and I say, oh, you know, that publisher or that gallery or whatever they were, they were right. Like, I don't think it's bad, but it's not, it's not the best that I can do. And perhaps it's not as focused or or clear as I thought it was. Um, I am an absolute and total workaholic. Mm -hmm. I am constantly working. So for every essay that gets recognized like the Axel Rose one there's oh like, yeah pause button do oh. you want to give the brief synopsis of that because we can link it in the show notes too but I feel oh. like you- oh just an essay that I wrote got into best music writing like like a while ago a brilliant brilliant essay about thank Axel you. Rose that everyone who's listening to this should read thank you yes go when, on when sorry. I was a music journalist that's just to say for every essay about Axel Rose there was like six or seven others that never saw the light of day or if they did they just wilted on the vine right so it's like if I were I do not want to pass soon I have so much left to do but if I were to pass and you were to open my Emily Dickinson trunk oh you mean like die yeah sorry pa- I was like pass what no, like what's the test like, yeah okay. if you were going if sorry. you found me if you found my Emily Dickinson trove yeah trove it would be filled with shit for someone who's 38 like i have made and done so much fucking shit that has never (laughs) seen the light of day and i have tried so hard to get it into the world and it just never made it so for me it feels as if my output that that people end up seeing is actually very small compared to what i make yeah tip of your creative iceberg right so that's just part of who I am is that I'm always I'm never not working right it's funny because one of one thing we worked together on a million years ago was that you wrote an article for me about Kesha Kesha, and I, I like I think about this sometimes because it was in an era when people were still kind of mocking her as a party girl before she had told like her story about abuse and before she had become like more of the advocate that I think she's kind of publicly positioned as today and you really saw something in her and I I, I feel like it's it's um it's not dissimilar from the really kind of sweet and compassionate way you deal with these teen girls in your book I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit about like young women and like how you position your work toward them or like how you how you center them in your work. Oh, and you're in you're inching towards intimacy. Um, <laughs> I hate talking about my feelings. I also talk a lot because I'm a Gemini. But I guess the short answer is I had a very difficult emotional time as a young person. Yeah, I am a no longer active addict. You know, so I coped with a lot of like my sort of difficult childhood through drugs and alcohol and acting out. You know, I, I, whatever, I stripped, (laughs) you know, which I think is fine. Sex work is fine. I'm not saying that that's not fine, but that for me, it was not fine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fine for some people. For me, it did not feel authentic to who I was. I just wanted a world where young women didn't have to feel 
like their only options to be seen or to succeed or be heard were through submitting themselves willingly to a culture that is inherently misogynistic. And so that if I could shed light on anything, it was that we have no idea what teenage girls are feeling. Mm -hmm. And even the girl that's in the happiest home still has to bear the weight of being a teenage girl. And it's infinitely more difficult than we give them credit for because everything is just like we don't give teenage girls enough credit we short we shortchange them we say their experience is fun or flirty or whatever but it's not it's difficult and it's painful and um Anne is crying and so I am <laughs> crying now not because I cried first Anne cried first <laughs> I hate intimacy. It's so hard for me. <laughs> I mean, this is exactly what's so good about your book, though. Oh, thank like, you. like I feel like I feel like that is actually sorry the emotional summary of oh. what I love about your book. Oh, thank you. Um, last last question. Yeah. I would love if you would talk about a few books that you see as being spiritual companions to your <gasps> novel. Yes, I would love to. Well, first, so like for fans of. <laughs> yeah. So I would first like to draw attention to a book that I recently read that is not even out yet that is so incredible and amazing and such a fantastic read. And it is a YA novel. It's by um, Lil Lilium Rivera, who I am going to have conversation in Lit Hub with. It's called Dealing in Dreams. It comes out in March. Freaking this book is so good. It is futuristic and dystopian, but it takes place in the future. And it's about like um, a girl gang. And it, it's also like a, a POC story, which for me, which is so exciting because I feel like so many of the books that we get about kids of color are like revolve around like, I don't know, like boys in the hood type stuff which is like fine that's a beautiful film but it's like that's not just that's not like the only experience you know what I mean so it's like very cool to have these like science fiction characters which is I think also like in a long tradition itself with like Octavia Butler and like you know like mm -hmm. different you know Samuel Delaney like different science fiction Women of writers. color own science fiction let's be real yeah 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 well and and there's Samuel Delaney who <laughs> is queer but that book is amazing I will never stop standing up for Go Ask Alice. It gets pooped on so much. Who wrote Go Ask Alice? Anonymous. It's not, I mean, we know who wrote it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who wrote it? <laughs> she was like a 35-year-old Christian like counselor or something. It was like a war. She was trying to like warn kids. Beatrice Sparks. Also like amazing literary name. Like just say it was written by Beatrice Sparks. It's so great. But the reason I love this book is not because I think it should be laughed at, but because I think it's incredibly well-written and it's like kind of genre-defining. Like a, a major part of why I wrote my novel the way that I did in sort of like staccato little sections was because I was greatly influenced by that book, but also one of the first books to kind of employ what we now think of as like valley speech. Like it's just the rhythm as a writer that she has, like her sort of like a da 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 just like the poetic way in which her sentences unfold are so strange and like I nerd out on it as a writer. Like it's written in this way that's actually extremely complicated and right as a kind of diary style, but like more than that. Well, because it's not right. It's not a diary. In that way, then it becomes surreal because it's like we're extending our level of imagination. But it's like the language is so cool, right? And this is a 1971 book that was really kind of seen as like 
fluffy teen girl. Right. It was like, panned completely. A sad teen girl book. Yeah. Well, when it first came out, it got really great reviews in the same way that A Million Little Pieces did. But I think because it was seen as sensational and people thought it was a memoir. Mm. Once it was revealed that it was not a memoir and that it was not a found diary and that it was written by like a grown woman, then it became like a joke. Yeah, once it was some like a grown woman's art project about the experience exactly. of being a teen girl. Exactly. Yeah. And and then I think the actual like sentence by sentence quality of the book was never fully like investigated. And I don't know, for me as a writer, if someone were to write this book today, I think that people would just not be able to stop talking about how like exciting it was to read. Mm. So I love that book. I'm going to go read it. I don't think I even read it as a teen. I remember seeing it oh around, but I've but never But you know read about it. it. Yeah, I know about it. Oh my I'm going to read amazing. it. It's like the character is so snotty. And so actually to plug a little thing, I wrote recently, I think you saw like an article in um, Electric Literature about 10 novels about addiction by women that are not like Bukowski. And that's one of them. So if you want to read my review of Go Ask Alice. Electric Lit. Yeah. Also, my book also to stay in time with this. I just, I love Less Than Zero. Like, I think it's so good by Brady oh, and Alice. Less Than Zero. Sorry, yeah. I didn't hear what you And yeah. a little fun thing about my title, Fade Into You, it was extremely deliberate. Nothing I do is accidental. I think that's the other thing I should tell people. I'm like a super control freak. Like, I am not laid back at all. And everything I do has like way more thought in it than I think people realize. So Go Ask Alice is a song lyric from, a from you know, uh, Jefferson Airplane, um, mm-hmm. which sort of defined its generation. Right. And then Less the than 80s, zero. Less Than Zero, Elvis Costello, and then Fade Into You is Mazzy Star. Oh, I love it. The so, Liz, uh, as Mary Berry would say. The uh, Liz. I was like very much deliberately trying to put my novel in a sort of lineage with these teen novels. Cool. And they're both <sighs> novels that are written in like little, like chunky. They don't have chap. They don't have chapters. Yeah. I think that bugged my editor. She's like, "Why are there chapters?" I care very little for what other people think about what I'm doing as I'm making it. Yes. Yes. That's what I mean. Once it's in the world, then I'm interested to know what people think. That's when you can studio visit my book. Right. So everyone who is listening to this (laughs) should buy Fade Into You you. and you want them to read it and have feelings about it. Nikki Darling, a legend. A legend. A legend. Uh, A Los Angeles legend. Nikki Darling also has a website, NikkiDarling.biz. That's great. (laughs) I'm really excited to read Nikki's book. Also, total aside, I love that we have the same structural problems with West Wing. That'll be another podcast. (laughs) But in the meantime, what else has been on your reading shelf? So at the... I think it was maybe last fall, a friend of mine recommended a novel by a German writer named Jenny Erpenbeck called Go Went Gone. And this really dovetails with a commitment I made to read more books by writers who are not from the United States or not living in America, more work in translation. And the book is a novel about a retired white college professor in East Berlin and the friendships and relationships he's de- he develops with a group of African men who are living in Berlin and kind of falling between the cracks of like European refugee law. And I have to say that I think she does a pretty incredible job of letting you see the shortcomings and the kind of privileged blind spots of our 
of the narrator without letting you believe that she also adheres to those views. Um, he's kind of one of these like trying his best white people, which like, <laughs> you know, Ooh, child. I mean, <laughs> listen, at, at certain points, like I'm going to, I'm going to speak for myself as a white human, like a trying my best white person is sometimes like where I, where I max out, you know, like not saying I'm proud of it. But anyway, I love the way that this book takes something that has dominated headlines and gives it a true literary consideration and really does not try to make a statement about like, this is what should happen, but really tries to investigate on like a themes and values level what's going on with, um, with really, really incredible prose. I'm feeling some sadness that I'll never be able to read it in its original. I mean, who knows, maybe I'll master German at some point before I die. But yeah. <laughs> um, what are you reading? A book that I read recently that made me very happy is 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret, which is like a very trashy biography of Princess Margaret of the crown fame, the British crown fame. And <laughs> the crown, Netflix is the crown? <laughs> of Netflix is the crown. I just haven't read, uh, like I don't read a ton of biographies, I realize. You know, I'm like, who has the time? Turns out I have plenty of time and I'm putting biographies in heavy rotation. So Princess Margaret pops up in like almost every other biography of like her contemporaries. It's like there's always like a Princess Margaret moment. She was a gal about town. Yeah, she was like a like like a real hoe. Like always <laughs> like a social hoe. Like everywhere. The book is like legit uh, riveting. The family is so trashy. As I told you before, I don't know how uh, Meghan Markle's mom let her marry into this family. <laughs> these people. These people. You know, it's like, it's a study of this, like, younger princess. She, you know, like, she's never going to be queen, so she's just trying to live her life. And the thing that's good about the book is that it puts it all in context. Like, she's somebody that, like, Picasso desperately wanted to marry. She dated, like, all these kind of, like, just dudes that were alive in no the 20th century. Pablo Picasso? Yeah, known misogynist Pablo <laughs> Picasso had a huge thing for, for Princess Margaret. Honestly, she's kind of a truant. Like, that's the word that comes to mind. I was like, oh, you just come from a rich family. If you were fully like a black teenager, somebody would be trying to arrest you to go back to school. Like, all, <laughs> all the time. The royal family is protected by so many gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. And so usually, like, that story gets really sanitized and it's told in a certain kind of way. And this book is written by a man. I don't read a lot of books written by men anymore. But um, this wow, man... buried the dirty secret. I know. It's the dirty <laughs> secret of this thing. Um, you know, it's written by a man. Uh, good job, Craig Brown. <laughs> this lady had a wild life. I'm going to make a quick plug on the books that have to do with sisters and are like a very quick, very absorbing read uh, for My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyenkin Braithwaite. It's not the kind of book I usually like because like murder but I read it in like one sitting on a relaxing weekend afternoon and recommend it wow you're recommending murder content you know what there's a first time for everything I know what did you like about it I liked that it is about a kind of complicated sisterly dynamic slash mm -hmm. a complicated relationship between two women and the dead people are men Ugh. Frankly, I hate dead women content, but like, wow. let's, I'm going to be honest with you about why this made skip through my filter. <laughs> You're like, men, it's possible that the men die? I know. I mean, all like, you know, this is why I don't do like lots of other murder content because it's all dead women. Anyway, there's so, some iconic SVU rec. episodes where men die. Let me tell you. Okay. 
The other book that I read that also just came out recently is Morgan Parker's essay collection called Magical Negro. Yes. And it's truly wonderful. Morgan is the like undefeated MVP of naming a book. Like all like the SEO is delightful. But um, you feel her like growing up through reading her where you're like she is just in this place in life where uh, things are more raw. They are more hyper specific. And like that thing that you said about Nikki Darling earlier, somebody who uh, can really put you like in a time and a place mm-hmm. like Morgan's poetry does that for me. And she is hyper specific with her references and, you know, and she really challenges the the magical Negro trope in every way. And it's really a an essay collection about celebrating the just the ordinariness of black life mm. and of her life. And it's a great read. And I want to make a plug for a book that I have been giving all of the babies in my life recently, Ada Twist Scientist, <laughs> which is a picture book. You know, it's inspired by like Ada Lovelace and Mary Curie. And so Ada Twist Scientist, like is just like basically championing girls and women scientists. But the thing that I like to do is give it to all the boys in my life it's just like a really great picture book and it gives you like boundless imagination for what life can be. Oh, that's an amazing review. My last shout out is another novel. It's called Talent, written by a wonderful writer and editor named Juliette Lapidos. And I just asked her to leave a little voice memo about the book and about what else she's reading and what inspired it. So I'm just going to kick it to her. I'm Juliette Lapidos, author of the new novel, Talent. Talent is about a graduate student who can't finish her dissertation, a bookbinder with a spotty past, a dead short story writer who stopped writing short stories, and the notebooks that bind them all together. The novel takes its name from the New Testament parable of the talents. It's set in a place very much like New Haven, Connecticut, but I don't call it that, for reasons that will become clear if you read the book closely. When I was working on talent, I tried not to read novels that I thought were similar in style, structure, or objective. But here's a reading list of books that are kind of like mine, only better. Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amos, which is a very funny campus novel. Stoner by John Williams, a very sad campus novel. And The Aspirin Papers by Henry James, a truly great novella about an ambitious editor who's trying to get his hands on a dead poet's letters to his lover. I'd also like to recommend Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin, a Spanish-language writer from Argentina who lives in Berlin. Fever Dream is a short, spooky book that consists entirely of dialogue. It came out in 2017. Thanks, and happy reading. Ah, look at this. So much to read. (laughs) Reading books is good. It's always good. You can always tell the people in your life who don't read books. They say stupid things all the time. Um, that's my plug for read more books. <laughs> Don't be dumb. Uh, read books or we will read you. So that's usually, fair warning. That's usually, fair warning. That's usually how that works. I will see you at the public library slash independent bookseller. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kenesha Sneed. 
Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac.